Well hello there. Welcome to a special New Year's Eve edition of Days of the New. The show where Nick and Kevin examine and pay tribute to the most influential culture defining new metal in the world and say a bunch of other jackassy nonsense. This is Season 2. Episode 1. On today's episode we discuss the titanic genre crushing compact disc known as $3 Bill Y'all by Limp Bizkit. You wanted the best, you got the best. This is Days of the New. Shut the fuck up. Get the fuck out of here. Yo, Dre. What's up? Give me a funky ass bass line. What's up, Kevin? Greetings from what we hope is still the United States as of the time that we uh, he launched this. Indeed, comrade. <laughs> Welcome to the People's Republic of Days of the New. For a little context, we are recording this um, shortly after the election. Hopefully we'll get this episode out in a timely fashion, so this makes a little bit more sense. But the election is over. Coronavirus still isn't. Some things have changed dramatically and some things have not. For example, here's my beer. And here's my glass of liquor. <laughs> it's Tuesday. Not a lot's happening. From the new metal perspective, I think there's only one tour going on, and it's Aaron Lewis and Sully Erna playing at drive-in movie theaters. So Ooh. that's a that's a tour. Tickets are like 300 bucks, so don't go to that. Jesus. Can you imagine? Can you just imagine, like, all the lifted trucks with Trump flags flying in the back oh, of that? Oh, yeah. There's just tr- flags blocking your view of the screen. <laughs> and, like, you, oh can't, you can't ask the guy next to you to, like, take his flag down because he also has an AR-15. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so I think uh, Chris Taylor Brown has declared himself a Proud Boy officially. He has, just in time for the Proud Boys to be co-opted by a full-blown white supremacist trying to take over the Proud Boys because their current leader is of Hispanic heritage. Yeah, which was kind of a beard for them anyway, or a, or a mask. They're just taking it off. Yeah. Alex Trebek and Sean Connery died within a week of each other, so now my favorite SNL bit can take place in heaven. <laughs> How how are you doing, Kevin? How's North Carolina? How's being a homeowner? Being a homeowner is great. However, uh, being a homeowner in a Trump neighborhood, kind of fucking weird. Yeah, I'm in one of those. I had somebody, a complete stranger, I don't know who to this day, left a... It was typed up, single-spaced. It was 18 pages. You got a manifesto? (laughs) I got a manifesto. All right. I got a fucking manifesto. Hell yeah. Left on my front yard. So I go outside, and I see them all along the street, like... And it says, I'm your neighbor. I'm not running for election. I am not asking for money. All I ask is that you read this as an American. So I was like, oh, fuck. I, I have to. What, what, like, they don't have a Facebook? Like, No, they don't have a Facebook. I thought all boomers had well, a Facebook. As we all know, the best way to get your message heard is to leave a 18-page uh, single-spaced typed manifesto on your neighbor's front yard in a, in a plastic bag. 
Oh, boy. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, we, we can get this out of the way as we enter season two of Days of the New. This is a show about new metal and how it affected our lives and how it continues to affect our lives. At no point have we ever decided this was going to be an apolitical podcast. <laughs> so, like, this is Nick and Kevin's show. <laughs> so we're going to talk about new metal. And if some of the other stuff we talk about, like, pisses you off, feel free to go find another new metal podcast because, fuck it, this one is ours. Yeah, yeah. This is uh, two dudes doing some virtue signaling, getting a little woke, and talking about the B-I-Z-K-I-T. <laughs> that is right. That's who we're talking about today. We went almost all of season one without talking about Limp Biscuit, aside from you graphically describing Fred Durst's sex tape. <laughs> uh, but yeah, we're going to give you guys a double episode. We're going to talk about Limp Biscuit for about two hours. How's that? Oh, sound? that just sounds great. You know, I don't know if it's one of those things where dogs start to look like their owners, but I was just down in the kitchen and my lovely fiance, Jamie, she looks at me and she goes, you know, with those shorts and that hat and the flip flops, you, you kind of look like Fred Durst. <laughs> oh God. Today I told the person I love to go fuck themselves, which was weird. <laughs> yeah. Cause I mean, if you've seen Fred Durst recently, like you don't want to, you don't want to look like Fred sure Durst. He's, it, he didn't age well. <laughs> I mean, not that he was ever a particularly handsome man. <laughs> so anyway, let's go. Limp Biscuit, the heartbeat of Jacksonville, Florida. <laughs> Formed in 1994, gaining popularity rather quickly locally, performing at Jacksonville's legendary Milk Bar. Mm -hmm. uh, the lineup stayed pretty consistent, aside from guitar player Wes Borland leaving and coming back multiple times. But we got your boy Fred Durst on vocals. Yeah. You got Sam Rivers on the bass. Oh. You got John Otto on the drums. Go. And DJ Lethal, ha ha ha, Lethal on turntable. Okay, so how the fuck does that work? I don't know. I mean, I tried to do a little back research into like DJ Lethal and like House of Pain only existed for like a year. So like the fact that we have to hear jump around at every sporting event for the rest of our life. House of Pain wasn't a big band. I think Everlast was Everlast before he was even in House of Pain. He was doing the, the white rapper thing early on, too. In my research, I found out that DJ Lethal's father was actually a Russian immigrant who, back in Mother Russia, would get Beatles records. He didn't know that they had effects pedals and production and shit like that. Oh, sure. So he learned how to mimic everything that was happening on those records with no knowledge that there was anything behind them. So then he comes to America as a session player at Indigo Studios, where Limp Biscuit would record this album. Huh, I had no idea. To tie Limp Biscuit into the national hellscape that is 2020, <laughs> I think we all know that like most, and we've talked about it before, like so many of these new metal dudes end up married to porn stars, right? Mm -hmm. So to tie it into where we are today, Sam Rivers, bass player extraordinaire for Limp Biscuit, his wife, is a former porn star, I mean, naturally, and current personal assistant to Stormy Daniels. Nice. You want to you wanna hear the darker connection from Limp Bizkit into uh, MAGA Christ. territory? Uh, yes. At one point, um, they were represented by the firm, like the notorious like agency out of New York City, and uh, Steve Bannon was a chief partner. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get into the biscuit. So, like... I'm going to say off the dome that I rarely believe a goddamn thing that Fred Durst says, right? <laughs> he's he's very clearly a marketing genius. Yes. He manufactured his own personality. Mm -hmm. So I don't know how much of the band's history is just pure marketing bullshit. But here goes. Fred grew up in Gastoria, North Carolina. Represent. Wait, wait. Gastoria. 
Gastonia. Oh, Gastonia. That, I get a typo in my own notes. Right. Gastonia, North Carolina. Um, so he's on wax saying that he was despised by the white kids at school because he was super into hip hop and break dancing. And he hung out with all the black kids at school. And the story goes that his friends had family in New York City that would send mixtapes to them. So he got into rap super early through like these New York City radio station shows. Uh, all right. So I'm going to lend a little bit of credence to this. First, I want to read you some recent headlines from the Gaston Gazette which is Gastonia's local newspaper. This one's from October 21st of this year. Thousands attend President Trump's rally in Gastonia. This is from October 25th. Phil Beck cries foul on COVID-19 restrictions. October 29th. Governor blames Trump for state COVID spike. Two who attended Gastonia rally test positive. November 1st. Gaston COVID deaths continue to spike. Oh, God. These are the people you're dealing with in Gastonia. Well, that uh, that makes that. <sighs> Nick, would would you like to uh, hear from the people of Gastonia themselves? Oh, of course. Okay. Once it sucks you in, you have to stay forever. It was college or go directly to a job. Basically, Gastonia is a hellhole. All right, so now we know where Fred Durst came from. He got into hip hop from his friends' mixtapes. He also claims that he was a breakdancing champion. But I have a real goddamn hard time believing that. Because if this is true, there is zero fucking chance that he wouldn't have incorporated breakdancing into Limp Bizkit's live show. Oh, absolutely. Instead of just jumping up and down like the caveman in 2001 Space Odyssey in front of the monolith. (laughs) (laughs) I did find a video from 1989 of Fred Durst dancing and rapping. And there is just a level of vanilla ice energy that is unparalleled. (laughs) I mean, he looks, sounds, and dances exactly like vanilla ice. Do you want to uh, hear this? Yes, I do. You'll be able to see it. Sorry to our listeners who will not be able to see this. Okay, so that's Fred in 1989. How this guy is not currently in front of like a shell station in Gastonia running up to people who are refueling and be like, hey man, I-, I need to get some money for my daughter's medication. And I'm just wondering if like, you know, you got like four or $5 to help me get this. She's real sick, man. <laughs> I don't know how. Dude, fate's, fate's wild, dude. I mean, like seriously, he he's a one moment in time from, from you know, like... They got big because, like, well, we're going to get into it, but because of Corn, and he invited Corn to hang out with them when they played Jacksonville. And if they just looked at him and said, like, fuck off, you redneck, none of that would have ever happened. Yeah. And no one would have ever heard of Limp Bizkit, Th- and he would be that guy. This video, just so y'all have an idea, is him in what looks like the day after, like, a wedding banquet hall, and he is doing The Running Man, and one of his friends is kind of, like, DJing, and... It's a demo tape. And he's going, if you see this, that's all you need to know. Like, yeah, Fred, that is all I need to know. It's uh, it's it's profoundly white. Yes. It, it, and very reminiscent of 
1989 when he's trying to do the Vanilla Ice thing because Vanilla Ice was making money. So when he isn't busy with his career of mowing lawns and doing tattoos because Florida, Fred gets deep into rap, punk rock, and skateboarding and plays in a number of bands. He eventually gets Sam Rivers to leave their uh, their band Malachi Sage and starts something that is both rapping and rocking. Those are uh, Fred's words. That's how he got Sam to quit their one band to join this one because he wanted to be rapping and rocking. They enlist John Otto, who was actively studying jazz percussion, to play drums for them. Wes Borland, who was studying music at the same school as Otto, joined on guitars shortly after. The band actually blew up pretty quickly locally, so Wes has always been kind of a performance artist slash weirdo, would perform in these bizarre costumes and stage makeup, which continued throughout Limp Bizkit's uh, career, but that became a big part of their local draw. Like, people would go see that weird local band with the guy that, like, painted himself completely black, right? You know, that eventually became a big part of new metal schnick, be it bands like Slipknot and Mushroom Mudvayne. Mudvayne, right? In uh, my dumb new metal band's first show, I was painted completely silver. And yes, I have a photo. And yes, I will put it on our Instagram. So if you don't follow us, follow that Days of the New on Instagram. Okay, hold on. How? Like, what what was the actual material that you covered yourself in? Stage paint. I was metallic Stage silver. Paint? Yeah, like the Tin Man in The Wizard of Oz, only like sweatier. Uh, D- and then wait. I got like silver spray for my hair. D- didn't the Tin Man in Wizard of Oz like die of cancer from doing yeah, that? Yeah, but that's, that, I mean, they've much improved stage makeup since fucking 1923 or whatever the fuck. Jesus, <laughs> like, all right. It doesn't have lead in it anymore for one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I guess that's good. Yeah. So they named the band Lint Biscuit, which is a top 10 worst band name of all time for sure. Mm-hmm. Named after a truly disgusting game, also known as White Cracker. Google it. I'm not breaking down the details of this game on this show. You can find that out yourself. I I, I, I can do this. Oh! I can do this. All right, cross off the bingo box where Kevin makes Nick uncomfortable. Okay, so the uh, Okie Cookie or White Cracker or... Uh, Okie Cookie? It has to do with taking a uh, baked good, a confectionery of your choice. Most people prefer a cookie, you know, something uh, with, a, with a kind of a hard tack to it. You and a group of your closest male friends, you gather in the loading dock of a Spencer's gift shop uh, in the mall, and you begin to masturbate vigorously in front of one another. Now, the idea here is to climax onto the cookie. Now, who's holding the cookie? I'm not exactly sure. I figured it would make more sense if it was like one of those uh, cookie cakes from the mall so that everybody can have a hand, at least one hand on it. And the last person to climax, it's like a musical chairs, except you have to eat all of your friend's semen on a cookie. That is the idea behind a limp bizkit. Was that good, Nick? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you you spoke more eloquently than I expected you to. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So anyway, that's where they get the name, Limp Bizkit. Before that, they tossed around a lot of other names, including Gimp Disco, Bitch Piglet, and Blood Fart. So that's cool. Just some cool guys making cool rapping and rocking tunes. Blood fart. Oh, God. I want to stop real quick because you have a lot of talent in this band. Yes. These are all, you know, guys who have bands in their own right. At what point do they go, you know what? This dude with the chin strap who hasn't played a lick of music in his fucking life. I should go with him. Yeah, and, and alternatively, can you imagine, like, 
TRL with Carson Daly, like, and in the number one spot this week, knocking Britney Spears off the charts is Blood Fart. <laughs> so, I mean, like, everybody that ever had anything to do with this band, from, like, marketing to labels, all tried to get them to change the name off of Limp Bizkit, but they, they wouldn't do it. So, Corn comes to Jacksonville, probably to play in Milk Bar, because there's fucking fuck all else in Jacksonville, right? Mm -hmm. Fred convinces them to pound some beers and get some free tattoos by him. So, like, once he has them captive and at needlepoint, he does the all, uh, hey, uh, you should listen to my demo tape. Somehow it worked, and Corn took them on tour, even though in later interviews, Fieldy has said that um, he tattooed Corn's logo on either head or monkey's back, and it looked like it said horn. Because he's not good at tattooing. Yeah, I just, I take real issue with the mythos of Fred Durst as a tattoo artist. I've seen videos of where Fred tattooed, and it is the back of a trailer that he lived in. The man is a kitchen wizard. This is not a tattoo artist, and to call him such does a disservice to actual tattoo artists. Fair enough. Corn takes him on tour. And uh, they literally went from playing at the Milk Bar to, like, going on the Family Values Tour. Like, there, there was mm -hmm. no, in, from nothing to just massive arenas, right? But mm -hmm. So they eventually signed with Flip, which is a subsidiary of Interscope. Other notable bands on Flip are going to be, uh, and all of them will get episodes on this show, are going to be Stained, Cold, mm -hmm. and Dope. Ross Robinson, who we spoke about a million times, the godfather of new metal, agrees to produce their debut, and they head into Indigo Ranch Studios to get to work on $3 Bill, y'all. They settled on that name because they are both funny and edgy dudes, and if you haven't put it together, it comes from the phrase, queer is a $3 bill. Mm. And then they put a dollar sign on the end of it, and y'all, because Jacksonville... Let's talk about the album art. If you're listening to this show, you've seen the album art and you've listened to this album. And if you haven't, you're a poser. And being a poser of new metal is the dumbest, most embarrassing thing ever. So, um, <laughs> It is a shadowy figure in graffiti style on a red background. And to me, it looks like something that was scribbled onto a desk in a detention hall in Florida. That is exactly what it feels like. It feels like the guy who, who, who calls himself like, I'm a turntablist graffiti artist. It's like, no, you're not. <laughs> so the album was released on July 1st, 1997. It received mixed reviews from critics, but it did get up to number 22 on the Billboard Top 200, which is a strong showing for a debut album that didn't get a lot of radio airplay. Mm -hmm. But we'll get into that in a minute. You ready to dive in? Hell yes. Let's go. So the first track is called Intro, and it starts with a um, street preacher style rambling about buying a gun and Jesus killing Nazis or, or something. I, I, I don't know what purpose it serves, other than the fact that the preacher starts yelling, kill the pollution, and then it leads into track two, which is called Pollution. It's hard to think about Limp Biscuit and Fred Durst and the idea that they knew they were destined to rule the musical landscape. Like, there's a lot of familiar territory here, but no part of it goes, these guys are going to take over music. Yeah, I mean, they were the biggest band in the world. Yeah, but like this first song, it is a completely serviceable Deftones ripoff and Korn ripoff. Oh, yeah. It's got, you know, a little bit of a meth scat. Fred's spitting some bars. It's got a decent keep the tape rolling. It's got good energy, but like at no part of this do I go, 
these guys are going to be huge. Definitely. Um, you know, and it, Ross Robinson does a Ross Robinson thing, and he uses uh, Fred talking on a hot mic before the music starts, right? So it, it comes in with a cool, like, West Borland guitar lick, and then Fred makes some kind of, like, donkey noise. And then the band kicks into a arguably pretty tough guitar part, and it sounds kind of good. But yeah, the, the song's dumb, I agree. Like, there's no way that this foreshadowed that they were going to be a, a big band, like... The lyrics are basically about how other people think their music is pollution and it sucks and it just makes him want to play it louder. And then the track ends with Fred screaming how he's going to bring that beat back and he just screams back, 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 back like Chris Berman calling the fucking home run derby while someone, (laughs) maybe Wes, is yelling for Fred to shut the fuck up. And it's just Ross Robinson nonsense. Yeah, I, I like it, though. Automatically, they're painted as kind of like these court jesters of new metal. Yeah. That's kind of the role that they seem comfortable to fill, whereas Korn is talking about, you know, uh, molestation and shit like yeah, that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Korn's going to talk about, like, being molested, and Limp Bizkit's going to sing about fucking. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> so the next track, and probably my favorite Limp Bizkit song, is Counterfeit. So this is definitely the first Limp Bizkit song I ever heard. It has the same vibes as Pollution. So like, it's got the delay pedal on the guitar while the band builds and Fred's doing this freaking me out. You wore a mask called Counterfeit. Yeah. Freaking me out. You wore a mask. Right. And and it's this is the song that really gives us some insight into how talented the rhythm section in this band is. Mm-hmm. John Otto keeps it in the pocket and Sam Rivers takes the bass out for a walk and like, it's real tight and like, when those two really link up is when Limp Bizkit works the best because Wes is always doing his own thing. Yeah. Sometimes he's not even playing. Yeah. Fred is going to try and take all the attention away from it, but that little in-the-pocket rhythm section part is what's good. There's also a really cool organ part in the verse that I yeah. never really realized it was there, but it's real dope. It's like a Hammond B3. Uh, and again, I used to listen to this in the fucking speakers in my like 19... 19- 86 Toyota Celica with stock speakers. So like, I never noticed the nuance, whereas now we've talked about this with other records, listening on like high quality headphones, like it really brings a lot of this stuff out. It does. I want to talk about the video very quickly because this was my first introduction to Limp Bizkit. Did you watch the video in preparing for this? Okay. I had no idea they reshot this video. I thought I was losing my fucking mind. I remember there was uh, Fred in an alley uh, or like or like a warehouse and he had a cowboy hat on and he was wearing a cold shirt. Oh, I don't remember that at all. Yeah, exactly. And he had a jumpsuit on. And this is some Berenstain Bears shit. It did. Dude, that's Mandela exactly. effect. <laughs> so like I went to go watch that video. I was like, oh man, this will be fun. And like there's this kid turning into a fucking bug and yeah. like I was, I was like and smashing Captain Crunch all over his face yeah I was like this did not happen I know I did not I know my brain is not just riddled with alcohol to the point where I would make up an entire Limp Biscuit video so like I looked for it and I looked for it and I found out there is another version so let's go to Wikipedia there is an original version and that is the version that I saw it's got Durst in the cowboy hat and he's wearing a cold shirt. And uh, whenever they'd show Wes, they'd like do that thing where they make the film skip and scratch. I actually thought when I saw this, I was like, is Marilyn Manson in a new band? Like he was dressed up like Marilyn Manson from Antichrist Superstar. He had the makeup and the hair over him. And like they huh. did that intentionally. If you look at it, it's it's like they're using like the same kind of film scratch and pop from like the beautiful people. And they only do that for him. That's a cool ass idea. Yeah. 
Like, I thought it was Marilyn Manson, and it confused the shit out of me. I also had no idea that Chino from the Deftones makes a cameo in this, in the OG version. So, apparently, they refilmed it, and they took some of that. They took out all the cowboy stuff. They took out the uh, jumpsuit scenes. And I'm just going to read what IMDb says the plot of this video is. Okay. A teenager is bullied and turns himself into an insect man. <laughs> he does. He like he starts smearing this like sticky black paint all over himself, and then he walks down the stairs where his family's eating breakfast, and he just stands on the table and like reaches down and grabs two fistfuls of Captain Crunch and just smashes them all over his face. It's yeah, I I don't understand what happened, but I spent a good part of my day like just trying to convince myself I hadn't lost my mind. Yeah, and he uh so this is before Fred came up with the alternate red cap identity, right? So he's got on a black fuzzy bucket hat and DJ Lethal's rocking a fedora. Oh, the fedora, and then it's yeah. it's it's them you know, so we we talk often about bands in this area's first two videos. One is them playing in a warehouse, and one is them with the smashed up live concert footage. Mm -hmm. This is the warehouse video. And we'll get to the live concert footage. We will. To wrap up Counterfeit, the lyrics are about how all the other bands in Jacksonville started aping their sound, which is a super interesting take for a band that hasn't put out a record yet, but okay. Mm. Who's also aping Deftones and Korn just oh, relentlessly. This song uh, was the first single from the record, and Interscope suffered from some scrutiny. That is some serious alliteration. Mm -hmm. Interscope suffered from some scrutiny. Good job. God damn, I'm a good writer. I'm a <laughs> writer. Uh, <laughs> they paid a Portland radio station 50 grand to play the song 500 times with a message before and after the song saying that the airtime was paid for by Interscope. So, like, you know what payola is, right? Oh, yes, I do. So this was, like, a big scandal in the 1950s where record labels would pay DJs to play songs and then would get them into the zeitgeist so they could sell more copies. And it's grossly illegal. Mm -hmm. um, there is actually a law because the United States government used to make laws. Uh, <laughs> and there was a law about this. So they did it as a commercial. So, like, literally, they're like, this is paid advertising from Interscope Records. It's legal, but it's super not cool. It's It's not good. It's super corporate and lame. Look, everybody at the time was doing it. They were just a little bit more brazen about it. And yeah, I mean, it was a big deal. Like they got called on it, like by news outlets like MTV. It was very much like a, how, yeah, da how but, dare you ruin the sanctity of corporate radio? Right. But all press is good press. So like, who gives a shit? Like it caught, they, they got way more than 50 grand in impressions, even though they didn't know what impressions were in 1997. Impressions were not a thing. <laughs> no. All right, cool. So that's counterfeit. The next track was, ugh, this is, this is tough. This was my favorite song at the time on the record um, as a 16 year old angry white kid in the suburbs what this song does is it introduces the number one new metal trope of misogyny right into the new metal zeitgeist right like oh. this is the first like here you go let's hate women together <laughs> cause I'm gonna bring it back with the book book oh my god right so like Fred's is stated that this song was written about a girl that he was seeing who worked at a pet store and was sleeping with all of his friends so naturally he's gonna get real mad at her and not his friends that were sleeping with his girlfriend but anyway he wastes no time and the song starts right out talking about how a she's a psycho and b he's going to murder her <laughs> damned if you do i mean he straight up does 
psycho female blowing up the phone line. You need to tighten that screw. It's been loose for a long time. I've been slammed with some bad luck. Soon I'm going to bring you doom with the buck. Buck, and now you duck, duck, goose, let loose with the 30 aught freestyle labeled hostile by my profile. You want to break that down, Kevin? What does that mean? Uh, he's going to murder a woman? Yeah, with a 30 aught. <laughs> yeah, because he thinks she's crazy. Uh, can I point out very quickly... Later on in his career, uh, well up into 2013, he constantly talks about how he fucked Britney Spears. Right. And uh, even in the song Ready to Go with Cash Money Records, and this is in 2013, he's going, the one who got Britney on her knees. Oh, and it's like by 2013, Britney was had had lost her. What? It was conservatorship. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Basically, her dad controlled her entire estate and made all of her uh, legal and healthcare decisions because she was deemed incapable of doing herself. She is a woman who suffers from a lot of uh, mental distress and needs help. And here you are talking about how you fucked her. You basically fucked somebody who can't even leave the house without getting permission. Not to mention... So he was claiming this during the period of significant other, which made it would have made Britney Spears about 18 years old mm. and Fred Durst about like 33. Yeah. So like gross. Very, very. I'm actually the same exact age as Britney Spears. Yeah. 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 Same birthday and everything. So, oh, well. yeah. So uh, I, I find it funny that he's talking about, oh, bitch, you're crazy. And when you actually take advantage of people who can't even sign their own medical uh, yeah, papers. Yeah, well, Fred Durst sucks. So, yeah. yeah. Back to the song, he, he repeatedly calls her a bitch because she's coming after all of his money. Like, what fucking... He's lawn mowing and tattoo artist in the backyard money? Yes, I yes, mean, like, I'm sure that Limp Bizkit got some kind of advance, but, like, they didn't even have a record out when they recorded this. He didn't have any money. Yeah, there's no way that you can convince me that they didn't dump whatever advance they got into their, like, Toyota Tricell tricked-out system. Oh, totally. Yeah. Wes has some pretty cool guitar parts. It's a really Mm. heavy song. Uh, It goes into this weird little jazz breakdown with some really cool bass guitar and drum work while Fred builds up this like, why you want to be like that thing? And the band's building and Wes is doing this spiral. And then out of nowhere, (laughs) he (laughs) Fred screams, stuck on yourself, you. And then he like, okay, okay. (laughs) I am so glad you brought that up. Dude, I am so I actually have that written down. So what he's borrowing from is the song Engine 9, right down to the way that Chino murmurs. <laughs> You're right. You're absolutely right. And the only other per- person or the only other group to really try to pull that off is Glassjaw. And they will do that later in everything you ever want to know about Silence. Also produced by Ross Robinson. See, there you have it. But no, this is uh, like everything from that particular part is Engine 9 by Deftones. Uh, it, and I even pulled up the lyrics and it's got Chino going like, you whore. Like that's, that's it. <laughs> that's exactly where it's from. Oh, that's fantastic. The song ends with a turntable breakdown that comes out of nowhere to remind us that DJ Lethal is in the band Limp Bizkit. Yep. Yep. Here's a hot take. So the song has a lyrical nod to suicidal tendencies, oh. right? A throwback to the song Institutionalized, right? Mm-hmm. All I wanted was a Pepsi, just one Pepsi, far from suicidal, but still I get the tendencies. So not particularly clever, and not even the first artist to use this throwback. In 1991, Cypress Hill released How I Could Just Kill a Man, 
and includes the line, all I wanted was a Pepsi in that mm-hmm. song as a throwback to suicidal tendencies. My guess is that Fred Durst listened to a lot more Cypress Hill than suicidal tendencies. And he probably only ever found out who suicidal tendencies was through the lyrics in that Cypress Hill song. I absolutely concur with that. People that were like listening to NYC hip hop when they were kids probably aren't also listening to fucking suicidal tendencies. Yeah. Anyway, let's move on to the next one. The next song is called Nobody Loves Me. It opens, you know, because it's Ross Robinson record with Fred just going, shut up. (laughs) And then we get this go away part that totally apes Chino Moreno enough. There's a a lot of Deftones stuff going on in this track. The song goes kind of hard. And naturally, I hate Fred Durst's voice for the most part, but the scream parts in this song are, are good. It's guttural. It's intense. He does a good job. The opening lyric's kind of dark. It goes, uh, I'm so sick of them deadlines. I understand why the maniacs are hitting them headlines. I was like, oh, I think he's talking about, like, school shooters and stuff. <laughs> oh, shit. I think he... See, all I noticed was that he's doing that thing that I hate that he does. The way he punctuates his barns with the maniac. With the, oh, yeah. With the oh, maniac. God. Like... <laughs> no, and that's some be-real Cypress Hill bullshit. It is, and it's just like... He, so he's doing like fake Chino and then fake B real. And then the. It's like, God damn it, Fred. Yeah, but it, but it is extremely new metal, right? Yes. Uh, woe is me. Nobody loves me. Maybe I'll go eat worms. Like, Ugh. and then he apes another band. The bridge comes in, and you're like, wait, wait, is is he doing a Maynard? Wait, is he trying to be Tool? He's doing a Maynard thing. And there's this totally, like, Tool-inspired part that comes out of nowhere. Is Tool new metal? We should maybe do an episode about that. I feel like we should. And it's interesting you bring that up because Nobody Loves Me is such a high-energy song. And it completes this high-energy run of songs on this album. And that's about it because then we get to Sour. We can't get to Sour yet. Oh, sorry. Sorry. I have have some things for you. Oh, okay. Remember Beach MTV? Uh, yeah. It re- right? So from the time that I was like seventh grade through high school, Beach MTV was on all summer long. And it looked like the coolest fucking beach party that you ever went to. Daisy Fuentes and Rebecca Romaine are wearing right. hardly any of their bikinis. And I'm watching like Soundgarden's Black Hole Sun video for the first time. While like the hottest woman alive is speaking to me through the TV. And I just want to grow up and go to this party which in hindsight is just a surging crowd of white people yep yep but anyway it looked super fun so in this particular clip i'm about to show you limp biscuit is playing the bikini runway fashion show of beach mtv in 1998 hosted by rebecca romaine and they play counterfeit and nobody loves me this video is nuts uh because you're watching these like white trash Floridians flail around the stage (laughs) while the most physically attractive human beings you've ever seen sashay around a runway in bikinis. (laughs) And it's so weird that it just totally broke my brain. Um, So I'm going to play you a little bit here. All right, everybody. Thank you very much. Crank it up one more time for the crushing chorus of Limp Biscuit and the tiniest bikinis you've ever seen. All right, so you get it. 
I just can't imagine. Like, somewhere in Cancun at one point in time, all these rednecks are going, Shut up, you! (laughs) Get ready for Limp Biscuit and the tiniest bikinis you've ever seen! Oh my god. What a weird time to be alive. Uh, All right, so anyway, we can get into Sour now. I just... I had to I had to play that for you. Yeah, no, I uh I really liked the run of songs up till this point and then we get hit hard with the filler. Like yeah, super hard. This this song Sour, it's uh, Wes must have been really into Tool. Oh, big time. Yeah. I think the thing we always forget about Limp Biscuit is all of these stupid stoner psychedelic jams. And they're just awful filler, but like the guys are super into it, not only on this album, but on the next one. I do have one note on Sour. Yes. Fred Dursk is, is a terrible lyricist, and he often has to tell us on this album, like, how much he can fuck. And like, eventually he starts <laughs> talking about he's a tough guy, but he literally says, one of the lyrics of the song is, I thought I knew you, took the time to throw my love into you. Oh, <laughs> shower what, what was it what was it doug rob said to to be in you oh yeah <laughs> throwback to the hoobastank episode season oh, one. Oh god yeah so anyway you were talking about undertale yeah like okay so how is this song six minutes long and i i just it, it feels like it goes on forever and then that is uh, do you have anything to else add to add to that Okay. Yes, I do. So, like, there is a lot of corn in this mm. song as well. There is a little meth scat, and then he tries to sing like Jonathan Davis, but only for the first half of the strong, because this song has no fucking structure. After the second chorus, it's like another song gets copy-pasted on. There's a rap to verse that's completely different from the tempo. Like, the song stops, and then a new faster drum beat comes yeah. in. And I don't remember this song. I must have skipped it a lot because it's not good. But it ends with another, like, spacey DJ Lethal fade out, like a 1997 rap metal version of The Doors. <sighs> like, Fred Durst is a less talented Jim Morrison wannabe. <laughs> and that's saying something because Jim Morrison was mostly terrible. And mostly dead. <laughs> it's a very uh, low bar to clear. So that's stalemate. The next song is called Clunk, but... They should have called it Clunker. I know. Because that's what this song is. this album is taking forever. I do not remember this album being this long. And one of the worst parts about it was that as I'm listening to this, like I'm trying to work while I'm listening to it, and I'll just like come back about, wait, what? How did I miss all these songs? And then I have to go back and listen to it. Right, because you never listened to it in the first place. You're like, well, this one isn't good. And then you just listen to Stuck again. Yeah. So this song has a major Ross Robinson part. So it goes into like this third verse acid jazz part, because I do think that at some point the rhythm section was like, yo, we, we went to music school and we do some <laughs> things. But so while they're doing this like acid jazz breakdown, which you remember our, uh, our Bible. That is the next generation of rock and punk new metal by Joel McIver. Yes. Pick it up so you can play along. It's bad, but it's funny. Um, it talks about in the initial description of new metal as how it's jazz influenced. And I when I read this, I was like, what the fuck is this guy talking about? Yeah. There's no jazz. It's in this little tiny part of this record that he was like, oh, there's going to be jazz parts because there's like a couple little like jazzy vamping parts. Mm-hmm. But like, that's it. Right. So while they're doing that, this weird interview comes on of this guy talking about like 
distortion and kids and guitars and getting yourself off. And I don't know where it's from and I can't find any information. And it's very much like the end of the first corn record where it has that like found footage of that couple arguing. Yeah. It's like that, but I don't know what it is or what it's from. And I hate it so much. I was not able to find anything on that either. So if there's any other Limp Bizkit uh, Angel Fire page owners out there listening, hit us up. All you Fred heads, get at us. (laughs) Oh, God. All right, so the next track is the one that everybody knows. Here we go. And it is Faith, the uh, cover of George Michael's Faith. So, like, we all know it. Uh, at the time, like, the the people that were into this record hated this that they did this cover. But it's still pretty fun. I mean, it doesn't make any sense because it's a non-angry song. They just put screaming parts in for no reason. And, like... You know that this was like a joke and they kept it in the set because the crowd ate it up. Uh, I saw somewhere else that they would also play a Paula Abdul song that didn't make it onto the record. And like, I was in a band around this time that played a heavy version of Gangsta's Paradise. Like, it was just a jokey thing. I was in a band that did a heavy version of Britney Spears' Lucky. Yeah, so like, those are the vibes. It's just a, it's a party song. And Ross didn't want him to put it on the album, but after they tracked it, like he dug it and they put it on. So I actually have a quote from Fred about it. This is uh, to Billboard. Uh, I love George Michael and decided to cover Faith for fun. We like to do really aggressive versions of cheesy pop hits. I didn't expect him to get busted in that bathroom, but his misfortune actually helped us. We couldn't ask for more of a buzz. Yeah, for those that don't know, George Michael was like jerking it in the bathroom and got arrested. Which, you know, who, who among us hasn't? Now we're approaching the end of this record. I have some takes on this one. So this song is called Stink Finger. <laughs> Which sounds gross, but apparently there are people that call giving somebody the middle finger is giving them the stink finger. And no. that's Yeah, yeah, seriously. And that's what he's that's what he's alluding to. Like this this song's a middle finger to his neighbor. See, Fred Durst at this time, as you said, like lives in a backyard. He's got a neighbor that he hates. And so the, he wrote like the last major song on this album is an ode to this neighbor. Now I can't imagine the level of petty of getting signed to a major label and being like, this is going to fucking show Jimmy next door. What Fred can do. (laughs) I like, uh, so it's full of like shitty lyrical gimmicks. He does this like out of your mouth comes nothing but should I listen? So he's like, Oh, I'm going to swear, but then I'm not, even though he's been swearing all over this record. And then he follows that lyric up with all bent out of shape because I piss on your gate. And I think he's being literal. Like, I think he pissed on his neighbor's gate and his neighbor's like, quit fucking pissing in my yard. And that inspired the, this rivalry because in Fred Durstland, you just take a piss when you got a piss, yeah, right? No, this is Flor- This is the Florida Hatfields and McCoys. It's also half an idea of a song. <laughs> Almost every song on this album and especially this song, it feels like they're all just looking at one another in the studio, like trying to figure out how to end the song. Like, okay, all right, all right, I'm going to go out. But then one of them doesn't fucking get the message and comes back in and they're like, (laughs) shit, they got to keep going. It just feels like the never ending jam session. Uh, Yeah, there is a lot of that. I think it's just, they probably only ever played 20 minute sets and then they had to put out a full album. You know, we've seen that kind of thing before. Yeah. So the opening lyrics of the song confirm about how basically this song is about Fred Durst's white trash and his y- yard was just garbage and his neighbor wanted his place to be nice and he knew that this asshole was bringing down his property values. So the lyric is, I've seen your campus. I'm thinking I've been there before. You know something? I live in this pig pen, this filthy pig pit next door. Another stench of my aroma? Stick that nose up in the air. Is that the excuse you use to ruin me? 
Those are the lyrics. So literally, it's like, yeah, judge me just because, like, I got a, a fucking Chevy Nova propped up on cinder blocks in the backyard. <laughs> what, you think you're better than me just because, you know, you don't have dog fights? Fuck you. <laughs> and, like, you'd think for a guy that made his living mowing lawns that Fred Durst would, like, have a finely manicured one of his own. No, but instead he's got Fieldy passed out like a lawn gnome in his uh, front yard. <laughs> Jonathan Davis fucking scratching at the meth bugs. <laughs> All right, so this song's dumb. And then it goes into something that will become a thing that Limp Bizkit just does moving forward. Uh, the next song is called Indigo Flow. Oh, boy. And this song is a literal thank you to everybody that helped Limp Bizkit come up. And like... It's a gimmick and it's not a real song. It's like um, a musical version of the liner notes, yeah. right? So the music's fine. It's the last track, so it's like non-traditional and it's all right. Chino, I had a blast with your death tones. tones. Dude, <laughs> I love a good shout out song. I love it. And it is insane to think that Fear Factory and Sugar Ray get a shout out on the same song. Well, I mean, Sugar Factory was an Sugar Factory? Oh, Sugar <laughs> Factory? God damn it. Sorry, there's a... Uh, y'all know I lived in Las Vegas for a while. There was a place called Sugar Factory there, and it wasn't a strip club. It was. It, it, was, like a, it, was, like a, it was like a candy store. Um, for strippers? They, they, I mean, for sure. Everything is for strippers in Las Vegas, one way or another. Uh, but yeah, he starts the song going, Christian and Dino were in the house. And he's talking about Christian Old Warbers and Dino Cazares, like the guitar player and bass player of Fear Factory. So at the time, as a kid, I thought that they played on the track. But now I kind of think that they were just like chilling at the studio. Yeah. All right. So I found this book called Limp Biscuit by Colin Devinish. And they actually talk about this song. And you know when he goes, line them up, Cheetah. I was like, I wonder who Cheetah is. Yeah. That's the dog that hung out at Indigo Ranch. So like... He shout-outs Fat Harry Tyler, who was a promoter in Jacksonville. And then, you know, it's just all the people that helped. Wes talked to the Iowa State Daily and said that it, they're just not so into, like, the traditional liner notes and they wanted to do it the Limp Bizkit way. So that's what this is. Yeah, they even give a shout-out to uh, Grundig, which would go on to become Cold. Oh, that's funny. I didn't know that. Yeah, apparently uh, Fred was really big up in them from day one. Um, and I, I just, I do love that Sugar Ray shout-out because, Taught me everything about drinking. Oh, it was taught me life was all about drinking. Ah, yes, yes. The world's game show host. Have you ever uh, seen the video of Mark McGrath trying to challenge a fan to a fight in a parking lot? No. All right, no, we're gonna, I haven't. We're, because Sugar Ray has a new metal record, like they were a new metal we band before they were a pop band, we'll do a mosh pit breaking down the time that Mark McGrath tried to fight a kid in a parking lot. But no, I love a good shout out song. I, I think it's just a very interesting snapshot in time. And that wraps up the album. So it had two videos. We already talked about Counterfeit. We can talk about Faith, which is your standard concert mashup footage um, mixed with hastily recorded scenes in between tour buses on the Family Values Tour. Looking back on this album, I mean, it's got some bangers. Like it's got some good tracks on it. To my point in the beginning, no part of this do I look at and go, these guys are going to be the name in new metal. It's, it's, just, it's not there. And I think that really plays into what's going to happen to them next. Didn't you go see Limp Bizkit like three years ago? <laughs> yes. Yes, I did. I saw Limp Bizkit on May 15th of uh, 2013 at Chicago's House of Blues. And it was fucking amazing. <laughs> it was absolutely amazing. Original. Original yeah. lineup, man. It was the original lineup. Uh, would you like to know the set list? Of course I would. So they opened with Counterfeit, 
And uh, then they moved into Stuck, which... Okay. I can't believe they still play it because like Fred caught a lot of shit about the misogynistic lyrics of that and tried to like be better moving forward, kinda. Yeah, yeah. Then they uh, went to "Show Me What You Got," which is uh, from Significant Other, right into "Rollin," which was pretty. Did great. they do the air raid vehicle version? <laughs> yes, it says "Rollin air raid vehicle." <laughs> Uh, and then they did the truth, which I guess is from the unquestionable truth. Yeah, I don't know. Cobra or something. Yeah, hot dog. Mm. Uh, from yep. Uh, my generation, Ugh. living it up. I'm broke. Also from significant other. Yep. Uh, my way. <laughs> no, what? Sorry, I'm broke was actually written for a three dollar bill and didn't make the album. No mm. shit. All right. Well, we're gonna get into that on the uh, next one. I have some thoughts there. Rearranged. And then they go into a litany of covers. You want you want to take any any guesses as to what those covers are? Um, oh man, I, I like I feel like they're the type that would do like walk this way. <laughs> you would be you would be surprised. Okay, so two you're absolutely gonna know, and then the other two kind of come out of left field. They do uh, Behind Blue Eyes, that terrible Who cover. Yeah, well, they release that as a single. Yeah. They do Faith. Okay. They do Killing in the Name. Why? By Rage Against the Machine. And then they do Smells Like Teen Spirit. I wish I could hear Fred Durst try to sing Smells Like Teen Spirit. Uh, you, You don't wanna. They do Take a Look Around from the Mission Impossible soundtrack. And then they end the evening with Break Stuff. I'm not going to lie. It was an amazing evening. <laughs> no, I mean, do you remember that time that we randomly went and saw Fear Factory? Yes. And, and it, was it was great. super fun. It was great. It was, it was super a good time. Fun. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so uh, Nick, have you seen Limp Bizkit? I have not. Uh, and, and I know that's super odd. Like, I just never got to it. Like, I also was like a total broke boy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and like, mm-hmm. I never got to go on like a spring break or any of that stuff because I always had to go to work and like, you know, I lived an hour and a half from Chicago. And like, so like at this time when I'm 16, the only shows that I know I, are, are reachable are like arena shows. I remember yeah. um, I saw Eve six and third eye blind play at the Aragon when I was like 17 and working at Dairy Queen. Cause some like cool older girls that worked there took me. And I was like, I didn't know venues like that existed. Like mm-hmm. every concert I'd ever been to had been in an arena up to that point. So um, no, I mean, I just like, I never saw family values tour and, yeah, I uh, I never got to see Family Values. You know, I, I as we've discussed, I got to see Corn. I was very fortunate on that one. I got to see Corn during the Life Is Peachy tour. I think seeing Limp Biscuit as an adult after all these years actually made it that much more fun. I don't think I would have appreciated it as much. Here's the thing: is that me and the people that went, we were like ironically going. Oh, of course, it was like. It was like, yeah, oh, yeah Limp Biscuit. Who was that guy that Britney Spears was married to for a minute? Kevin Federline? Kevin Federline, yeah. I went and saw him once at the House of Blues, ironically. <laughs> Wait, did he like? Did he have an album? Yeah, he put out that song. Um, uh, what was it called? It was about like, it was a, a term for like fat asses in Brazil. I, um, dude, what? Yeah, dude. Hang on. Kevin <laughs> Federline single. I was just going to Google fat asses in Brazil. But, uh, uh, I think it was called, uh, yeah, Popazau. Pop- oh, Popazau. I remember Popazau. <laughs> Shit. Yeah. Okay. But well, yeah, purely ironic. Everybody yeah. was there for ironic reasons. So we all roll in there for like purely ironic reasons. 
the minute they get on stage and start playing counterfeit, everybody just sheds their pretension and we are all there to see Limp Bizkit. Hell yeah. Like that, it's like all that sense of like cool that you've worked to cultivate goes right out the fucking window the minute they come on stage and you are just there to enjoy the show. Uh, yeah, I absolutely I'm, recommend going to see it. I'm feeling that. Does that wrap up? $3 bill? Y'all's? Y'all's? I think so. I think that I, I don't have anything else to say about this album. I don't. Yeah, think. it's it's a great album. It's an important part of the new metal story. Is it the most important part? I don't know. No. <laughs> You're just going it, with the hard it's, no? It's not. I mean, I think this led to their next record, which had big pop culture implications. While they were the face of new metal for a while, they weren't the best new metal band by like, a long shot. You're right. They weren't. The jokes, like Deftones didn't joke. No, 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 no. And Corn. By and large, they joked a little bit, but they were on drugs. <laughs> yeah, they were on a lot of drugs. Limp Biscuit were the first like jokers. They were the first people who almost had the precognition to go like, "Oh, this is real dumb." Yeah, I mean, like on the Family Values tour, there was a giant toilet on the stage, and they climbed out of the toilet to start their set. Like, yeah, yeah. So, I think that's largely what people remember new metal for, instead of the seriousness or the genre bending or anything like that they remember the big dumb braggadocious kind of like dick and fart joke of limp biscuit you know what not all of us were molested and sometimes we just need a record to listen to there's nothing wrong if you were molested like shout out to everybody who was molested oh my god <laughs> another days of the new episode brought to you by QAnon. <laughs> all right kevin what have you been listening to i have been listening to the new casket lottery album uh, me, me too that's ah. mine this week okay oh, well, so we'll pick two songs what song are you gonna go with i'm, I'm going with the lead off track uh you are a knife okay i am going with the song born lonely hell yeah the album for those of you is uh short songs for end times and wow it's just an amazing album man I mean, it sounds like 20 years ago. Like, it's yeah. got, like, big Sparta vibes. It's definitely a post-hardcore album with that, like, really shouty kind of Midwest post-emo yep. approach. I saw the Casket Lottery. I actually, I am currently, I'm recording this, as always, from Kansas City, Missouri. Uh, the Casket Lottery is from Lawrence, Kansas, which is, like, 45 minutes away. Lawrence, mm -hmm. Kansas is fucking dope. The rest of Kansas is a miserable shit pile, but Lawrence <laughs> is super cool. Everybody should check out Lawrence, Kansas at some point. It's rad. But anyway... Um, the Casket Lottery plays out here still. We were supposed to see them at Goddamn Furnace Fest. Yes, we were. But I saw them when Small Brown Bike broke up the first time. They did two farewell shows at the Fireside Ball in Chicago. Yeah. Yeah, I saw them in 2012 when they released Real Fear uh, somewhere in Chicago. Big shout out to the Casket Lottery. While you should listen to uh, short songs for end times, I can't throw out how important enough uh, Survival is for Cowards was mm -hmm. their 2002 album. Mm -hmm. uh, you really can't go wrong with anything from their catalog. What up, Casket Lottery? All right, man. Cool. Well, we're going to wrap this one up. It's good to be back. We're uh, we're back at it. This is season two. Thanks for riding with us. Please, you know, tell your friends. 
hit our socials. Like I said, Days of the New on Instagram and on Twitter. You can find me at uh, Nick underscore the underscore knife on Twitter and Instagram. And I took Facebook off of my phone, so you can't find me there because I'm not checking that shit anymore. Amen to that. You can find me on Instagram at K-J-D-E-L-U-R-Y. And if you are Donald Trump, you can find me on Twitter <laughs> because I created an account and held on to it specifically for the day I could tell him to eat shit. Which I did. I've been telling him to eat shit forever until he blocked me. Look, it was just one of those things where when he got elected, I was like, one day I'm going to tell this man to eat my shit. And I wanted to wait until the perfect moment when he'd really feel it. Because you know he reads all those, right? Oh, for yeah. sure. So I just, I, I created this account and it's Kevin with a string of numbers behind it. And I'm just. <laughs> so you look like a bot. Yeah, I'm just an egg. And I, I've tweeted once. I've tweeted only once. And it was, hey, Don, eat shit, loser. <laughs> And it felt so good. It felt so good. Oh, hell yeah. All right. Well, we're going to come at you in two weeks with uh, another Limp Bizkit episode because this is a twofer. But we are back to weekly content, so we'll have our mosh pits every other week. And uh, yeah, again, can't thank you enough for riding with us. Please tell your friends. Like, a lot of time and effort goes into this, a lot of research, and, you know, it, it means a lot that, that people listen and enjoy. So we're glad to be back, and we're, we're glad you're listening. Amen to that. Next week, I'm going to bring it back with the book, book of significant other. Love you guys. All right, later. Some of those who work forcing are the same that burn crossing. Some of those that work forcing are the same that burn crossing. Something